beginning at Acts uh, 6, verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Uh, Then moving on to 7 verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Uh, Then down to verse 33. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then finally, from chapter 7, uh, verse 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. 
And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name's Jeff. I'm the pastor of Union Church. Great to see you here tonight. Uh, It'll be a great help to have that passage, Acts 6 and 7, uh, open in front of you. We'll be uh, looking through it as we go tonight. Uh, At Easter this year, um, the Notre Dame Cathedral uh, uh, burnt, caught fire. Uh, You might remember the photos. Um, Here's a photo. Oh, I had it. Oh, wait. No. No. Whoa, what's going on? Oh, there it is. So confused by these arrows. Um, So this is it. The spire kind of caught fire and the roof collapsed. And if you remember it, it kind of it caused this uh, outpouring of grief around uh, the world, really. People deeply moved uh, to see this building on fire. Now, partly that's just because it's historic and a, a beautiful building. Uh, but for many people, it had this spiritual significance. This was uh, a kind of majestic, quiet contemplative space where you would go and and meet with God and to see it uh, burning caused a deep grief. But is that where you find God? In a cathedral? Uh, We might not uh, put it like that, but it's certainly an idea that's kind of embedded in our culture that you you go somewhere uh, special like this to meet with God. Uh, This second photo, uh, this is... uh, it wasn't exactly this scene, but like this. When I was a teenager, I went on an Easter camp and on Easter Sunday morning, uh, they got us up before dawn and we climbed to the top of this hill overlooking the ocean and with the sun kind of rising behind us. And uh, it was a chance to, kind of, to think and, and reflect and connect with God and it was meant to be this spiritual experience. It was slightly too early in the morning for me to have a spiritual experience of any kind. Uh, but that was the idea. And again, that idea is, is embedded in our culture, that you would, you would go out to nature. Uh, but is that where you find God? 
out in nature? Where is God present? Are you more likely to feel connected to God in the bush or in the city? Uh, Because how we think about God's presence, where he is, uh, changes how we think about our life. Uh, It will shape what we think of as special or sacred around us. Now, all this comes up in a strange way uh, through chapter 6 and 7 of Acts, uh, the story of Stephen. He appears on the scene in Acts as part of a group who get put in charge of distributing some food. But look at how he's described there. Chapter 6, verse 5, kind of before we started reading, but uh, it says that they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then chapter 6, verse 8, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen's obviously uh, an important guy. Uh, He performs signs like the apostles. And just like the apostles... Stephen runs into opposition there in verse 9. It's actually, it's like Newton's third law of motion. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. As the gospel goes out, opposition presses back. And uh, that happens over and over again in Acts. And so Stephen's dragged before the Sanhedrin, uh, these uh, set of Jewish leaders, just as Peter was earlier in Acts, just like Jesus was. And here's the charge, verse 13. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. They're the two accusations. Blasphemous words against the temple and against Moses. And those two accusations are what shapes this speech, this long retelling of Israel's history there in chapter 7. And he answers those two charges uh, that somehow he's against the temple and against Moses. So that's how we're going to break this down uh, tonight. Part one, we're going to uh, look at the temple. And uh, the summary of his, his argument is there in verse 48. He says, The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. That's his argument for accusation number one. And then uh, part two, he addresses the, the question of Moses. And here's what he says, uh, verse 52 is the summary of his argument. Was there ever a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? And the sum of those two arguments is enough to get him killed. Because on both points, he flips it. Right? He goes from being the accused to being the accuser. He's standing in the dock, but he talks like he's the prosecution. Uh, and he, he says, I'm not the one rejecting the temple. You're the one rejecting the temple. I'm not the one rejecting Moses. You guys are rejecting Moses. He turns it around and he pulls zero punches. He just gives them straight fire the whole time. But we don't really read it like that, I don't think. If you read the whole thing, uh, we just kind of picked a few verses out because it takes like 10 minutes to read the lot and it feels like a very long-winded retelling of the history of Israel. Uh, Maybe like a, a review of this sermon, slightly boring, needed an edit. That would be what you would say about it. And as you read through, right, uh, it feels, it doesn't feel to us like it's inflammatory. It just feels like he's stepping through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. But to the Sanhedrin, these Jewish leaders, they would have hated it. They would have hated every bit, just a brutal retelling of Israel's history from their perspective. Have a look at how uh, Stephen starts there in chapter 7, verse 1. He says, Then the high priest 
uh, asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. All right, okay, let's start at Israel's history right back at the beginning. Uh, Where do we find God appearing? Well, he appears in Mesopotamia, Babylon, right? See, it's not that it's not true, it's just to say it like that, right? It's just hurtful, okay? It's like speaking of Taylor Swift, it's like saying finding out that Taylor Swift is coming back to Australia, but she's going to Adelaide and not Perth. It's like, why would you point that out to us? <laughs> and it's not just that. The, the whole of Stephen's speech runs like this. It's pointing out how God is a God on the move. Uh, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. The temple is not what you guys think it is. He goes on with the story. After Abraham, we have Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph. Verse 9, have a look with me. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. There it is. Strike two. God's there. He appears in Mesopotamia. He's there in Egypt too. These enemies, these foreign places, God's presence goes there too. Do you think there's somewhere where God can't be? Right? Somehow God can't be in prison. God's in prisons. God works powerfully in prisons. Do you think he can't possibly be in Iran? He definitely is. Uh, do you think he, he, he wouldn't possibly uh, be in a nightclub? We need to get our theology right. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. He's not confined to a church building, to a cathedral. Right? We're here in a lecture theatre. And God is here too at work. And even when we get uh, to the temple uh, here in Acts chapter 7, uh, actually uh, Stephen points out that it starts out as a tabernacle, a tent, and they carry it around. God is a God on the move. But see, that's not how the Jewish leaders thought about it. See, their mistake was a mistake of false equivalence. Right? Uh, false equivalence is a fallacy where uh, two separate things have something in common and so you think that you kind of call them the same thing. But actually, they're separate. Um, so as an example of false equivalence, um, it's like saying, you know, Homer's Iliad, that's uh, an ancient text that is kind of part myth, part history, it's kind of mythological and the, ba- the Bible is also an ancient text. And so they're both ancient texts, so they're, kind of, they're both myth. But see, that's just lazy. Actually, you have to treat them both separately. And it's a false equivalence. And the Jewish leaders have fallen into the same kind of a fallacy. They think, well, there's, there's God and there's the temple. Right? And God puts his presence in the temple, so they, they must be the same. Right? That God's presence is the temple. But they've conflated these ideas. It's a false equivalence. They've reduced the big thing, God, down to this little human thing, the temple. It's like uh, scooping a cup of water out of the Indian Ocean and then saying, you know, so this is the Indian Ocean. It's like, no, it's much bigger than that, right? You can't reduce it down like that. And Stephen isn't speaking against the temple. He's speaking for God. 
Right? God is so much bigger than what you shrunk him down to. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And this is so important, right? This is so important because think about uh, this speech in the flow of the book of Acts. Acts uh, follows this startup, the spread of the church through the world. And this is a crucial concept. The fact that God is not confined to Jerusalem. God is a God on the move. He can go out through Judea, through Samaria and to the ends of the earth and you can find God there. I think that's why so much is made of Stephen being full of the Spirit. Right? You want to know where God is? Well, he's where Stephen is because the Spirit is in Stephen. And that's how the gospel spreads. As Spirit-filled people go out into the world and take the gospel to new places and God is there at work in people for them to hear the gospel and respond and take hold of eternal life. And that's exciting It means that if you have the Spirit, then where you go, God goes. Because you take God by his Spirit with you, and God is at work there. It's tremendous to know that your work, whatever it is that you do, is a sacred place where God is present, even if it's noisy and busy and customers are annoying, right? Uh, God is there. He isn't only in the quiet, contemplative spaces. He isn't uh, to be found kind of exploring nature. He's present everywhere in our world. But he's especially present in you by his spirit. God is a God on the move. He's there with you through this week at uni. He's there with you at work, at home. And he's there as you take the message of the gospel into those places every day. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. That's Stephen's answer to the first accusation. So no wonder they start getting a little worked up. Uh, But the next bit is even stronger, right? He answers the charge that somehow he's against Moses and against the law. And to address this, he tells uh, this story from verse 23. In some ways, it's an odd story to include. If you've only got 10 minutes to tell the entire history of Israel, uh, this seems like a very minor incident, something that you'd skip over. Uh, But let's have a a look. Verse 23, uh, he tells this little incident. He says, When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Who made you ruler and judge over us, they say. But see, this is Stephen's point. He says, I'm not the one against Moses. You are. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? You had Moses. And Israel rejected him. He goes on. Have a look at uh, verse 39. He's still talking about the life of Moses. Verse 39, he says, But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Uh, That's at the point where they reject Moses and they ask Aaron to build a golden calf for them. 
right? Again, not a great incident uh, to bring up if you're telling the history of Israel. It's kind of like uh, telling the history of Australian cricket and only mentioning the ball tampering story. That's what he's doing. He's pulling out these moments and he says, look, Israel always rejects the prophets. This is what they do. Moses promised uh, that God would send a prophet like him. And Stephen says, that was Jesus. And verse 52, now you have betrayed and murdered him. He says, you're just doing what Israel has always done. You stiff-necked people, he calls them. The same uh, expression that God uses for Israel uh, back in the days of Moses. He says, uh, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. See, these are the most Jewish people, you know, they're, they're the leaders who are obsessed with Moses' law. And he says, you don't even do circumcision right. <laughs> you know, they would have hated this, hated it. See what he's saying? He's saying, you keep the physical circumcision law, but your heart is set against God. Your ears are uncircumcised. You don't listen. You don't obey. And so this is like, this is too much for them, right? They fly into a rage. Uh, the Sanhedrin are there, gathered around, sitting as judges, but they just turn into this lawless mob and they attack Stephen. But see, even that just confirms exactly what he's been saying. Uh, they literally, literally block their ears and la la la, just like yell. And they just confirm the pattern. Moses spoke God's law and they rejected him. Jesus came, calling them back to God, and they killed him. And Stephen stands there and they kill him too. And the passage has all these little clues uh, linking Stephen to Moses and Jesus. Uh, Stephen's face, we're told in chapter 6, verse 15, Stephen's face is like the face of an angel, uh, just the same way that Moses' face uh, shone with God's glory uh, after a meeting with God. And Stephen dies uh, in a similar way to Jesus. He commits his spirit to God and uh, just like Jesus did, he prays for his persecutors, just like Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Moses, Jesus, Stephen, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? That's the answer uh, to this charge. Now, I think there's two important things to pick up from this uh, for us. Firstly, there's the danger of being like the Sanhedrin. There's the danger of being like the Sanhedrin. Uh, see, again, their mistake was one of false equivalence, right? Uh, they thought, well, there's obeying God and there's the law of Moses. And, and God gave the law of Moses, so uh, they must be the same thing. We, we're keeping the law, so we must be obeying God. But they weren't. They were doing the rituals, but with pride and selfishness. And when Jesus comes to call them to repentance, they, they refuse to change and they just block their ears and they don't listen. And so there's the danger of being like the Sanhedrin, of having the same false equivalence, to think, well, you know, I've got kind of Christian habits uh, you know, I don't swear, I, I give to charity and stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, God likes those things, so therefore I must be obeying God. But that's not the test. 
Here's the test. Are you listening? Are you listening? Are you changing? Because to listen and to respond is to change. See, the problem with the Sanhedrin is that they wouldn't listen. Uncircumcised ears that wouldn't listen to God's word. Uncircumcised hearts that wouldn't respond. So are you changing? Are you growing as a Christian? Is your heart more warm towards God for all he's done for you? Could someone look at you and say that you're more gentle, more humble, more generous? Trajectories matter in the Christian life. Trajectories matter. Uh, What trajectory you're on. Uh, I always say you don't have to have everything worked out if you're a Christian. In fact, that's the whole point. We don't have everything worked out, but trajectories matter. What's your trajectory? Are you growing? Or are you flatlining? Are you listening and changing? There's the danger of being like the Sanhedrin. And if you think oh, that you know that can't happen, well, it does. It, it totally happens. Uh, just over the last few weeks, there's been some high-profile uh, Christians publicly disown Jesus. You might have heard of Joshua Harris in the US and uh, others, people who've, who've abandoned the faith. And whenever that happens, there's a, there's a complex set of uh, individual circumstances, and I don't want to diminish that. But to reach that point, to reach that point of of abandoning Jesus at a certain point you need to block your ears and just refuse to listen so firstly there's the danger of being like the Sanhedrin secondly there's the reality of being like Stephen see God's prophets people who speak God's word get persecuted Moses Jesus Stephen and if we stand in that line, then that'll be us too. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, In fact, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, Here in Acts, uh, Stephen stands as the first Christian martyr. And I think it's telling that he's not an apostle, right? This is uh, just what happens to ordinary Christians and it's what continues to happen to ordinary Christians around the world today. It's just the reality of being like Stephen. And so how do we respond to that? Uh, we're not in, in danger of, of violent persecution here in Australia right now, so how should we respond? Well, I think firstly, be aware that this is the reality for many around our world. Uh, this is uh, this picture. This is... Uh, the website opendoors.org.au. Um, there's one of many uh, organisations that uh, aim to help the persecuted church. Uh, these guys keep a register of the 50 most dangerous countries to follow Jesus. And uh, heading somewhere here, having a look at this, is a good way to start getting informed about uh, Christian persecution around the world. I think we need to start there to work out how we can pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ elsewhere. They daily face the reality of being like Stephen. Uh, But there's also a reality for us too. We have far less opposition, but it's Newton's third law of motion. You know, gospel preaching will bring gospel persecution. And so we need to be ready for that. 
to ready, be ready to bear up under what pressure will come. But as we finish, uh, I want us to see what happens after this persecution breaks out. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So it seems like a tragic day for the church, just uh, this, this first martyrdom, uh, but somehow God uses it for good. Isn't it incredible? Right? And in some ways it's, it's funny because Peter, as he's telling, retelling this history of Israel, he tells the story of Joseph. And uh, if you know the story of Joseph, uh, his brothers try to kill him and then they uh, sell him to slave traders and uh, he gets sent down to Egypt. But in God's sovereignty, Joseph being in Egypt is something that God uses to save many lives. And here we have Stephen being killed, but as a result of this persecution, God's people are scattered and the gospel goes out and spreads for the saving of many lives. God is able to do that. The sovereign God is able to take uh, evil things and turn them for his eternal purposes, just the same way that he used the evil of the cross uh, for salvation. Under the, under the sovereign God, the, uh, this persecution actually drives the spread of the gospel through the, the rest of Acts. God's people uh, have to fan out, and as they go, they take the gospel. And that works, right? As, as they're scattered, that works because of the two things we've seen uh, tonight in Stephen's speech. Firstly, we've seen that God is a God on the move. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And so as God's people are scattered, God goes with them by his spirit and he's at work in the places they go. And so we see the, the church uh, grow and, and flourish wherever his people spread. And secondly, we've seen that obedience is about the heart. It's about circumcision of the heart and the ears, listening to Jesus and being transformed. It's not about the law of Moses. It's not about one particular culture. God isn't confined to one place, to a cathedral, and he's not confined to one people, to one culture. And those two theological principles mean that the gospel can go out. It can go out to different places and to different cultures. And that's great news for us. See, we don't have persecution pushing us out into the world this week. And yet we're going to go, right? We're going to go out into the world. It's going to happen. Uh, you guys will go to uni. Uh, you'll go to workplaces. You'll go back uh, to homes and families. And as you go to those places, if you have God's spirit, then you take God with you. He goes with you. And he is there to work in the people that you uh, live and work amongst. And just like Stephen, you'll go with the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel, a message that brings eternal life. And I think Stephen would be pretty pleased to know that that is happening here in Perth at the ends of the earth.